Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic and question is, what is a person? Which is a bit of a peculiar way of putting it. More often, the question has been, who is a person? With all of the usually terrifying ethical ramifications that go with that. But it helps to back up one step and first examine the question of what a person is before we start talking about who a person is. In Christian discourse, the locus classicus, or the classical place in the scripture to go for answers about that, is the Genesis chapter 1 description of human beings as being made in the image of God. And that has had very rich resonances down through the tradition. So, Dad, why don't you get us started by talking us through that? Yeah, Biblical critics, contemporary biblical critics would be uh, eager to point out, I've read this often in the literature, that the um, image of God passage in Genesis 1, 26 to 28 is insignificant within canonical literature. It's a rare expression. It doesn't have much resonance outside of Genesis 1. And it's way, in the tradition, it's been blown way out of proportion to its importance in the Bible. Well, I protest. <laughs> Tell us about your protestations. I think that this is uh, seeing the forest but missing the tree, this attitude. Of course, the image of God, Latin, imago Dei, is uh, rare in Scripture. It comes very late in the history of Hebrew scripture. It comes from the priestly source behind Genesis 1, and then it's then reiterated again in Genesis 9, and I'll talk about those two things in a moment. But it comes very late in the development of Hebrew scripture, and it comes as kind of a mature summation of all that the ancient people of God, Israel, experienced in its history with God constituting it God's covenant partner, God's junior partner in the care and stewardship of the creation, uh, the exalted destiny of the human person. All of these uh, lessons learned in a very difficult history with God, uh, Israel summed up in the statement that in the image of God, he created them, male and female created he them, after the likeness of God. Now, having said that it comes late in Israel's history, uh, it's also significantly reiterated in the New Testament, where especially Paul the Apostle uh, speaks of Jesus Christ as the Greek icon to theo, the image of God. So, the notion here is that Jesus Christ is the new and true Adam, the Adam that Adam was meant to be and failed to be, so that the humanity of Jesus Christ gives us the likeness of God for which human beings as God's image are destined. So I don't think we can minimize the significance of this doctrine simply because of a statistical count of its occurrence or not in various uh, the, the exact repetition of the, of the expression. That's my first observation. So we should see it kind of as rather than the first thing said that then got lost in the story, which is how if you're just reading the Old Testament straight through, you might perceive it, but rather as it being like almost 
well, the punchline isn't the right word, but like the crowning summation of everything the Old Testament is wanting to say about human beings and their relationship to God. Now, let me, having criticized the biblical critics, now let me bow to them and acknowledge their significance for this passage. Very gracious of you. Priestly account is often regarded as having been forged in criticism of the Babylonian creation myth from the time of Israel's exile in Babylon. And that creation myth, Enuma Elish, tells a story also of the creation of the world and the origin of human beings. And the story we have in Genesis 1 is widely regarded as a, a stiletto thrust to the juggler vein of the Babylonian myth of Enuma Elish <laughs> and a surgically sharp redaction of it. Now, let me just make a couple of quick points about this to get focus in on image of God. At the end of the story of Mar Marduk slaying his mother, the monster god Tiamat, and creating a habitable space on the earth. So just now there's a big contrast. In Genesis 1, God says, and behold, it was, and it was regarded as very good. So God creates by sovereign command uh, and, and not by matricide. by matricide or deicide or cosmogony or any of these mythological elements of a violent emergence of order from chaos. Number two, at the end of Enuma Elish, the Babylonian myth, uh, Marduk establishes on the earth a temple and makes human beings to be the temple slaves, to take care of the sacrifices and and serve the gods, at the head of which now is Marduk. And so the image of God on earth is simply the Babylonian king slash high priest who sits at the top of the pyramid or the hierarchy, and all the other human beings beneath him are created to be slaves. So you have the idea that the kind of the living incarnation of Marduk on the earth is the Babylonian king slash priest, and that other human beings are exist merely as temple slaves, carting wood in for the sacrifices, slaughtering the animals, etc., etc., everything that went on in the sacrificial rites of an ancient temple. That's pretty horrifying. No human rights... Uh... The convention there. Hierarchy, not equality. Patriarchy, not brotherhood, sisterhood. And what a contrast we have then in Genesis 1.26. It's, I think, important over against our contemporary individualism. We're, to, we, we're inclined to say every individual is made in the image of God. Well, I don't dispute that as a kind of extended meaning of the text, but what the text says specifically is that it is the male and the female in partnership, in reciprocal uh, aid uh, that constitute on the earth the living image of God. The human couple, the male and the female, in their partnership uh, in reproduction and production. Well, there, there. Let, let me just stop you a second there. There are two two beats to this story. There, there's the first that in the image of God, he created them. And then secondly, male and female, he created them. So there is a kind of joining of those two realities. But I wouldn't 
you seem to be putting the emphasis entirely on the coupledom. And I think from the earliest church, especially because of its concern over, for instance, you know, the celibates out in the desert and so forth, there was this kind of suggestion that, well, does that mean that you're only truly human if in a uh, you know, marital partnership? And the recourse was to go back to that first half and say that it's already there, and it's there both in the male-female duality of human ah, beings. But once again, I protest. Okay, try it. <laughs> well, for two reasons. The plural is used in both parts of the verse. It's not, a, it's not singular. He didn't create individuals. He created a plurality. He created them. Yeah, but the them there is not specified as the couple until yeah, the second Yeah, but it's Hebrew par- parallelism. It's spelled out in the second clause. Uh, it amplifies the meaning of the first clause. And the church fathers are simply wrong about this if that's what they argue. Because, <laughs> okay. because, and I think a lot of modern monastics and certainly the Roman Catholic theology of celibacy, priestly celibacy that I'm aware of, denies that it's a rejection of marital partnership. It's rather a spiritualization of marital partnership. The priest is married to the, uh, to the uh, body of Christ. The, that is his spouse. It's a spiritual marriage and a spiritual covenant. And likewise, uh, uh, through the monastic orders and so forth, the argument is not that these individuals have the image of God apart from marital community, but rather in a development uh, and spiritualization of marital community. Well, I don't think Genesis would really buy that argument, but okay, continue with what you wanted to say. (laughs) All right, we'll have to let this stand then for the time being. We'll probably, we'll circle back back to it at some point. Well, probably we should just talk about marriage as such and how it relates to the unmarried as such at a future date. Yeah, okay, we can do that. In any case, I would like to say that In contrast to the Babylonian myth, you have uh, an elevation of all human beings as made in the image of God for the likeness of God. And so in place of uh, the royal hierarchy, priestly hierarchy that Israel witnessed in Babylon, they are elevating all of humanity uh, in its social relationship foundation to which is the male-female relationship as the fundamental form of human community. And so there's a thrust towards democracy, to speak anachronistically, and there's a thrust towards equality um, in uh, in this passage. And that's borne out by the one repetition of the image of God notion, uh, language, later on in Genesis chapter 9, where after the flood of Noah, the prohibition against murder is once again reiterated to the post-Diluvian world. And the rationale for the prohibition of murder is that human beings are made in the image of God. And so if you take a life, you are injuring God and more particularly God's property. Uh, the creature that God has made and upon whom he has set his seal. So a murder is not simply a murder against the individual victim. It's also a sin against God, God the creator, who made humanity in his image for his likeness. 
And that that one is not set in a marital context. No, of course, it, but it, it, it extends, of course, I don't deny that the image of God applies to individuals. I'm simply saying that in the beginning of this passage, and let me continue, Sarah, with the proof of, of sure. my argument here. There's been, all through history, a whole bunch of crazy speculation about what Imago Dei means. And the predominant speculation was that it refers to human rationality. Unlike the inferior animals, we have reason, and that's what makes us special and valuable. And that notion carries all the way into the modern period. That's what Immanuel Kant uh, secularized this Christian theology or anthropology to mean when he said we owe ourselves respect as bearers of reason and we owe others respect also as bearers of reason. Uh, so this rationalistic interpretation of Imago Dei uh, has a long uh, prehistory. It goes back to the ancient philosophical Platonism and is carried into modernity by a philosopher like Immanuel Kant. However, as the feminists point out repeatedly, that interpretation of image of God has always had an insidious devaluation of women. As now, Too true. this is the sexist uh, cliche, the sexist caricature of women. Please don't think that Paul Hinlicky is saying this. I'm simply reporting <laughs> what, and this can, you can go all the way back to Socrates' marriage to Xanthippa in the Plato's dialogues. Here he's about to commit suicide, uh, 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 accepting the verdict of his trial in Athens. And what does Socrates want to do? He wants to gather his young male friends and have a philosophical disquisition about the immortality of the soul. But Xanthippa is acting hysterically, weeping and wailing and with the children. And Socrates says, get the women out of here. How can we possibly have a dialogue about the immortality of the soul in this precious time with that hysterical wailing going on? And that's the caricature. Men are cold, sober, and rational, but women are emotional, borderline hysterical. Women are inferior to men, females inferior to males. Yeah, consequently less human because they're more emotional and less rational. Right, and they're more like animals. And they, they therefore they right, can be right. treated more like animals. Like and they have domestic been. pets or something like that. Right, so I wanted to bring that out. Now here's the proof of what I'm saying about Genesis 1, 26, 28. If you want to avoid all this dangerous speculation, Look at the text of Genesis 1, 26 to 28, because the divine commandment, the mandate, the, the inscription of the human vocation, what is the image of God to do with this uh, exalted status? And the text reads, I paraphrase, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. Now look at you can't a male alone can't be fruitful and a female alone can't be fruitful it's the male and female in their partnership that are fruitful and filling the earth so the text right. text itself reinforces the interpretation that this 
uh, status is addressed to and conferred upon the human couple. So the thrust of the passage is not that people who are unmarried or uncoupled are somehow less less human. That would be missing the point of it. The point of it is that is that equalizing males and females, but also yoking them together in partnership is that is like you said the primal human community from which everything else flows. Absolutely, and of course there for every rule there are exceptions. There are important exceptions. But as you know from the uh, wonderful article you wrote some years ago uh, called Blessed are the Barren, the women of the Hebrew scriptures are, are absolutely devastated when they discover that they're incapable of giving birth uh, because this is their human vocation, their fulfillment uh, of the image of God mandate. And we don't have to confine women barefoot to the kitchen and the children in order to affirm this uh, uh, unique and special status of women in relationship to men, I don't think. Right. Well, let me just say, I'm a theologian and a pastor, but I really like going barefoot and I love to cook. So let's not uh, put us under what God allows us to put together. Well, that's right. That's right. <laughs> and I just wanted to comment, you know, you, you went through the end of the Be Fruitful passage and talked about having dominion over the earth. And, and that, of course, gets people really nervous now in an age of climate change and post-colonialism. But let me just make the very simple observation that all colonial enterprises have relied on separating men and women because the men go out alone and they are the ones who possess the new land and kill the new people and um, make uh, sex slaves out of the women that they encounter, certainly in nothing remotely re resembling an equal partnership. So if we had always taken seriously that you cannot break up the coupling that is the foundation of human society, it would have been a severe limitation on colonial possibilities. And I'll also correlate that with the internal colonization that occurred in these European and North American countries during the time of industrialization, when sure. when the village life uh, where uh, families lived in this kind of uh, local, ecologically responsible community was shredded to pieces. I remember hearing in Slovakia a story about the injustices uh, worked upon men uh, and the damage done to their women and children back in the village during industrialization, that the factory owners would pay them every Saturday night their pitiful wages for us 80-hour work week. And as they put the cash on the table, on one side they opened up a brothel, and on the other side they opened up a bar. And so these exploited workers were then further exploited uh, spending their precious uh, pennies, really pennies, yeah, uh, on on uh, on these uh, human pleasures in a desperate situation, and of course that robbed the families back at home who were waiting for financial support. So I think there's a lot here to be looked at. Colonialism is not only an exterior operation; it's also an interior operation. Yeah, and an ongoing one we still see, and not just at the blue-collar level, but very much at the elite levels as well. Yes, very very well said. Now, just back to image of God and a, a couple of final thoughts about this before we move on. The significance of this text and the mandate that goes along with it, I want to refer to two early modern thinkers who uh, seized upon this text and this doctrine of the image of God. 
Gottfried Leibniz in Germany and John Locke in England. Let the listener know that dad is a huge fan of Leibniz and he really isn't the, oh, everything happens for a reason and it's all perfect guy. Now go on. Yeah, that was Voltaire's caricature of Leibniz in the uh, laughable figure of Dr. Pangloss. Uh, But Leibniz himself was actually traumatized by his encounter with Baruch Spinoza, the apostate Jew who was uh, kicked out of the synagogue, anathematized actually, for his heretical view denying the personhood of God and the personhood of human beings. Uh, Spinoza was basically a kind of a pantheist, and when it came to human beings, he regarded them as fundamentally bodily organisms which are organized as modes of natural processes. So the whole idea that the human being is in any sense a personal agent a doer of its own deeds, rather than a conduit of nature acting itself out in in various modalities, uh, has its modern origins in Spinoza. And Spinoza's philosophy is very powerful because it's the first anti-humanist case for renaturalizing our understanding of the human. uh, with this radical determinism and decentering of the human subject. And Leibniz, for scientific reasons, was kind of attracted as a young man to this interpretation of the machine of nature that he thought he was reading in Spinoza. But when uh, he grasped its profoundly anti-humanistic implications, he recoiled in horror. And he seized upon his early theological training. Leibniz, by the way, was a Lutheran, or at least he was a a, a declared adherent of the Church of the Augsburg Confession. Uh, uh, Leibniz then lifted up the doctrine of the image of God, and he tried to develop an alternative to uh, Spinoza's modalism that is the teaching that human beings are simply modes of nature doing its own impersonal thing, with his monadology, which is his doctrine that human beings are organized as individuals, each of whom has a unique and special relationship to the whole of reality, and therefore a vocation, a specific niche and a specific role to play in the unfolding of the best of all possible worlds. So Leibniz then, as an early modern, lifted up image of God as opposed to Spinoza. For Americans, even more significant is John Locke, because his second treatise on government, of government, is uh, the source of Thomas Jefferson's political thought, at least the early Jefferson, and specifically of the Declaration of Independence, and in particular of the uh, celebrated passage, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where did Locke get that idea? 
He didn't, I mean, uh, where did Jefferson get that idea? He didn't just dream it up out of his own head. He learned it from reading Locke's Second Treatise of Government. Well, what did he find in Locke's Second Treatise of Government? In England, the contemporary counterpoint to Spinoza was Thomas Hobbes. They were both naturalists and determinists, but in different ways. But in any case, Thomas Hobbes, entire book, The Leviathan, is a sustained attack on Christian anthropology, uh, particularly as uh, Hobbes figures it in St. Augustine's Doctrine of the Two Cities, which Hobbes hated because Augustine's Doctrine of the Two Cities implied that the church, the city of God, has independence, spiritual independence, from the authority of the state, and is in a position, even in extremity, to disobey the state. Hobbes wanted a totally secular state in which religion was, again, like in ancient Babylon, incorporated under the authority of the king, who would then become the Pontifex Maximus, the high priest of the society. Oh, like Eusebius with Constantine, too. Right. That was a kind of a semi-Aryan Christian version of the same kind of thinking. And to do that, Hobbes has to undo the story in Genesis chapters 1 to 3. He has to overthrow that narrative, which tells us that human beings created in the image of God for the likeness of God instead filled up that image with unlikeness to God through their disobedience and then fell into bondage to sin from which in the fullness of time they would need redemption. That's the Genesis story, the kind of the narrative of the human person that's told in the story of Adam. Well, Hobbes had to utterly destroy that. And he said, we are not fallen angels. That was his polemical way of dismissing Genesis 1, dismissing the image of God passage. We are rising beasts, not fallen angels. And what he meant by that was in the state of nature, he argued, we are in a state of the war of everyone against everyone. Bellum omnes contra omnum the war of all against all. And in this state of nature, by the way, the sexism is, is just as, as thoroughly inscribed here as elsewhere, because basically it's us alpha males who are either enslaving the beta males or slaughtering them, but then we alpha males get into competition with each other because we are all driven for gain or for glory. And what we want to gain is access to the women. And the glory we want is defeating our rivals. So war and slavery, then, are inscribed into the very state of nature. Of course, this is a bloody chaos and mess, until finally the light of reason and enlightened self-interest dawns. And I say to my fellow alpha males, look at guys, let's stop killing each other. You make me king, sovereign, and pledge me your allegiance, and I'll distribute gain and glory to you guys. You'll all get your piece of the action. And so civil peace is created by the uh, emergence of a monarch, of a, of a sovereign authority 
and the social contract consists in giving that sovereign a monopoly on the means of coercion. He possesses the power of the sword, and that's his uh, stick alongside the carrot of access to the women and the gold and so forth. Well, John Locke was a gen half a generation younger than Thomas Hobbes, and when he read this, he was horrified. He, too, wanted an end to religious war, Protestant-Catholic war. He, too, was looking for a secular peace, but he had a very different solution to it. And if you read the Second Treatise of Government, Locke basically retells the Genesis story. He says in the state of nature, the basic social unit was the marriage of the man and the woman and the extended family that evolved around it, and they lived in a state of harmony uh, with the natural environment in which the usufruct, the use of all of nature's bounty, was available to whomever expended the labor to harvest it, uh, but there was not as yet any private property. Everything was available. And possession came simply by the investment of labor. If, uh, if I pick a quart of berries, I can say with some legitimacy, according to Locke, these are my berries, even though nature produced them, but I did the work of picking them and collecting them. And so if you walk over and grab my quart of berries and say, but I want it, then Locke says, that's theft. You're taking away the labor invested in harvesting those berries. And that's immoral. That's wrong. That's a violation of the covenant of nature. Mm -hmm. It's also a very Old Testament to insist on property rights and what's gained by labor. I think so. I think Locke is, Locke is a Puritan. He knows the Bible from head to toe. And all of this is in, in, internalized in his philosophical thinking. So as a result of appropriating this, and then, of course, Locke goes on to explain the fall into sin and the development of private property and so forth and so on. But in Second Treatise of Government, Locke is the first philosopher I am aware of in modern Europe to make a sustained critique of slavery and to argue that slavery as such is immoral. Now, note, it's not... Wow correlated with race yet. It's just the idea that you can steal another person's labor, that you can, by making that person a slave. That is a violation of the true state of nature, according to Locke. So this came into the United States in Thomas Jefferson's reading of it. It was inscribed into the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, but he kind of missed the slavery part. Well, yeah, I'll tell you what, I, as I mentioned that for a reason, because in his notes, Jefferson writes, if we believed this, if we believed in a, in a, a just and loving God, we would be terrified about the institution of slavery in these colonies. He actually... Would be. Would be, <laughs> if we believed it. Right, right, right. And I think that's one of the morals of the story I want to get to by the end today, that if we believe Christian anthropology, we ought to be terrified at what we have become. Yeah. Whoa. Well, that is a resounding conclusion to that um, summation of Western philosophy there. Wow. And Martin Luther King Jr., just one more thought. <laughs> okay. In the Lincoln-Douglas debates, 
Douglas was arguing what the Founding Fathers had written in the Constitution and said it's the law of the land that African descendants are only two-thirds of a person. They don't count as full persons. They Therefore, there's a right to enslave them unless they've been emancipated by paying a price to their owners or something like that. Lincoln had a very hard time arguing that that's in fact what the American Constitution did. It established a race-based system of slavery and gave the southern states two-thirds of a person in terms of census counts to determine representation in Congress. So Lincoln, what could Lincoln do to contradict Douglas's appealing to the Constitution as it was written? Answer. He appealed over the head of the Constitution to the Declaration, and he argued that the Declaration of Independence is the American covenant with God, and Mm. that the race-based system of slavery is America's original sin. And then a wow, powerful stuff. Yeah, and then a hundred years later, of course, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. saturated like a Baptist preacher would be with the scriptures powerfully invoked these precedences in his uh, nonviolent struggle uh, to establish the civil rights of people of African descent. Right. So what we see is that who and what counts as a human has always been under dispute, and it is still under dispute now, just as it has been from the beginning. This is not a new problem. In fact, it's a very old problem. I agree. Yes. As in Jesus' parable about the uh, Good Samaritan, he was asked, who is my neighbor? And at the end of the parable, he concludes, who acted like a neighbor to the man in need, right? So, yes. Yeah, turning it around. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a number of terms we've been kind of playing with and using slightly interchangeably or, or fairly interchangeably. Like, So we have Imago Dei, image of God, and we have human, which is usually contrasted with animal, but it can be used as a contrast if the emphasis is on rationality to women or children or slaves or certain races, etc. Um, and then we, I mean, the title of the episode is person. And um, that for us nowadays has, you know, it's just the kind of common English term for an individual with human DNA walking around on the earth or whatever. Um, so what I, I thought we would do now is, is trace out the interesting fact that we use this language of person for human beings, but we also use the language of personhood for the the divine trinity, that we talk about the personhood of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and that is distinguished from their nature as God. Um, and is there any correspondence? I mean, is, is it just a, you know, because it's a common English term, is it a mere happenstance that they overlap, or is it actually of significant as theological significance well i think that's a very leading question sarah since you wrote a wonderful (laughs) book on elizabeth bear sajal and uh in that book you discussed at length the orthodox uh, theologian vladimir lasky's uh thinking about this correlation between trinitarian personhood and human personhood so i say uh, uh go for it girl take it away tell us all about it 
Well, you you saw where I was headed with that one. Yes. Well, it was interesting because and actually until I, I read his work, the, the correspondence of the two did not strike me as being anything other than just this is the word that we use in English. And in fact, we use it in English because it came from Latin. And in Latin, the word person comes from per sonare, per meaning through and sonare meaning sound or making sound. And it actually referred to the mask that an actor on the theater wore. So like their face, their being was behind the mask and their voice came through it. And um, famously, this confused Augustine terribly when he was trying to sort out what on earth these crazy Greeks were talking about, about the Holy Trinity and uh, nature and personhood and hypostases and usia and all this kind of stuff. He couldn't make heads or tails of it. Um, so it, it can be uh, a difficult and confusing word to use in the, the technical sense. But so, yeah, so let me, well, let me just say, generally speaking, from a Trinitarian perspective, we talk about how, you know, God is God. There's this nature of God, right? We presume it to exist. But what Trinitarian uh, theology actually says is that divine nature does not exist as such. It isn't like there as a kind of mass from which you can like Plato mold three persons or, you know, four or 10, if you were in the mood to, but for some reason they stopped at three. Um, nature is, it is something real, but it's something real in that it is shared by the, the actual instantiations of it um, in reality. And the actual real instantiations of the nature of God are the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, but they are called the persons of God. And so this is where we get into the whole difference between, as we say at great length in the Athanasian Creed, for example, that um, there is one God, so that implicitly refers to the nature that they all share, but there are three persons, and the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father, and so forth. And so that's the idea, that actually the only reality of the nature is in its actual existing form form as these persons. But what these persons are in common is, in fact, their nature. So then what I found in, so um, Dad mentioned Elizabeth Bercy-Gel. So she was a French Orthodox theologian who lived through the 20th century. She became most famous for her making a spirited defense in favor of the possibility of ordaining women to the priesthood in the Orthodox Church. Needless to say, it was not taken up. She wrote actually quite a lot of other things on a lot of other subjects, and unfortunately she's not as well known for those things as well. And she knew every significant Orthodox theologian of the 20th century, was a very active ecumenist, amazing person. I got to meet her, exchanged letters with her before she died at the age of 98, <laughs> a very long-lived lady. But uh, so as I was uh, writing my dissertation, which eventually became a book about this, one thing I found is that she and we'll talk about her more at some future date. But basically, she moved from defending the ordination of women on the grounds that women have a distinct nature that must be present in the church's ministry. She ultimately found that unconvincing. She moved to an understanding that women are individual persons, like all human beings, called by God to various tasks. And in that light, it could be entirely possible that God would call individual women who are persons who happen to share the nature of womanhood with one another into service. So uh, we can take up that interesting argument at a future point. But in order to make her arguments about women being primarily understood as persons rather than being um, one solid block of a thing, a thing, a real 
thing called female nature, which is um, how it tended to be argued by her opponents. She used um, Vladimir Lasky. He was an, an earlier 20th century Orthodox theologian, one of the Russians who fled from the revolution and settled in Paris, um, a friend of hers. Um, and so he wrote this really amazing number of, of essays on theological anthropology or, or what it means to be a person or human in the light of Christian theology. And so he made the point that there, uh, let me quote here, he says, there is no elaborated doctrine of the human person in patristic theology alongside its very precise teaching on divine persons or hypostases. In general, Christian anthropology has not received sufficient theological elaboration. So his question then was, is there a correspondence? Does Trinitarian personhood of a common nature, divine nature have any impact on how we think about what human beings actually are? So as you can probably guess, his answer was yes. In fact, we must understand human beings or human persons in some analogous fashion to how we understand who and what God is. So let me again uh, read a couple of quotes here because he says it um, so precisely, I can't improve on it by paraphrasing it. So he says, it will be impossible for us to form a concept of the human person, and we will have to content ourselves with saying, person signifies the irreducibility of man, he means human, to his nature. Irreducibility and not something irreducible or something which makes man irreducible to his nature precisely because it cannot be a question here of some thing distinct from another nature, but of someone who is distinct from his own nature, of someone who goes beyond his nature while still containing it, who makes it exist as human nature by this overstepping and yet does not exist in himself beyond the nature which he enhypostatizes and which he constantly exceeds." So let me unpack that a little bit. What he's trying to say is that it isn't a thing. Like So again, as I said before, when we talk about the nature of God, and here also the nature of person, it's not a pre-existing thing that ever exists by itself. There actually is no such thing as humanity in general. Whenever we talk about humanity, what we're always talking about is a collection of actual instantiated human persons. And by looking at them all together, then you can see, well, what are the things that they have in common? So if you take, for example, a contemporary genetic approach, you can say, well, you know, scientifically, what all human beings have in common is the human genome. They have DNA, and that's what makes them to be human beings and not chimpanzees, despite the fact that there's a huge amount of overlap in DNA between the two. There are these final differences between them that make one to be humans and the other to be chimpanzees. But it's not like you can ever have humanity just as such and then like you know, pop off or squeeze out bits that then turn into persons. So nature in that sense is more of, it obviously is something truly real, but at the same time, it also only exists as a kind of heuristic or categorization device that we can only know from the individuals. And why this is so important for Lasky and for the, when he's talking about, about irreducibility rather than even something irreducible is the idea that what all of us experience of our humanity is that we are given something, something that we don't have the freedom or ability to alter, right? We're, we're made of flesh and bone and blood, and we have brains that 
you know, make things work and we have hearts that pump. We are male or female. Uh, our skin is a certain color. All these different kinds of things. We're somehow given something that we can recognize as our nature. But at the same time, there's a way in which what you could even say what consciousness is, is this awareness that I am not just a thing. <laughs> that, I, that That's the basic point. A, a thing that replicates this given nature or acts out this given nature in some sort of, uh, like an automaton in, a, in an automatic uh, unconscious fashion. But in fact, there is something about me that is and yet exceeds that that can be and yet can reflect in a, a distant kind of way back on who I am. So the, the point that then Elizabeth Barisigel took away from this just briefly is that there isn't this thing called woman. And so every individual woman that you meet is just um, a replication of the identical thing of woman. So there is a real thing about being women. There's a reason why we have that category. And yet at the same time, it doesn't mean that every woman is identical to every other woman or every man identical to every other man. Um, and so you can see this is both conceptually difficult, but at the same time, absolutely true to our experience of what it means to be a person is to have this kind of, I am this, and yet I can somehow not be it or <laughs> reflect back on it or um, externalize myself from it or see I have this in common with others and yet I am me and not them. So that's kind of the whole conceptual frame we're talking about there in the personhood of humanity, that we are all part of a common humanity, and yet none of us is simply generic humanity. In fact, you cannot find a generic humanity. You can only find the individuals within it. Really great, Sarah. What a great summary that is. Just a quick comment. What you're seeing in Lasky is the Christian demythologization of platonic realism. Now, let me unpack that dense statement. This, well, as you're saying, there's a kind of a myth that nature is something real, that natures have a, a reality that transcends individual persons or things. Like the form that Plato is famous for. And this is, yeah, this is Plato 101. You know, if I'm walking down the uh, uh, Appalachian Trail and I'm tired and I see a stump on the side of the trail, and I say to myself, oh, a perfect chair, and I can sit down and sit on the chair. And then I can come home and go into my living room and see my stuffed leather chair and say, ah, there's a comfortable chair. Well, the, the, the stuffed leather chair and the stump on the trail have very little else in common. What connects them is my idea of chair as a useful tool for homo sapiens to sit upon. And then Plato made a reflection about that. He said, look at uh, the real existing chairs in the world come and go. They can be stumps on the trail or stuffed leather chairs in the living room, uh, but they have no enduring reality. In contrast, the idea of chair is eternal. It never changes. It's always there. And if it, that's true, if it's immune to the ravages of time, if it doesn't decay or go away, then the idea of chair is more real than existing and real chairs. This is what is called platonic realism, that the ideas of things are more real than their instantiations. 
And this is a kind of mythology, This, or we would say today an ideology. This is turning the idea of the thing into the real substance and at the expense of real existing stumps or armchairs. And what's really terrible about that for human beings is the kind of inevitable slide into thinking that these ideas or essences have their own teleology. So that real existing chairs should be the best possible chairs that they can be, you know. And so you start then doing an evaluation and saying, well, stumps are pretty inadequate chairs. Let's sculpt them and make a better chair and so forth and so on. So you do a lot of rough stuff sculpting and shaping to real existing things in the world in the name of imposing an idea and its goal, its teleology upon them. And that's what happens to human beings. Uh, the, the noxious instance of this is Aristotle, who argues that some homo sapiens are by nature meant to be slaves. And so also for women and children. You know, every one of these ideas has its own teleology. And then this is imposed upon real existing persons. You're not being a good woman. You're not being a good child. You're not being a good slave. This is your essence. Let me add, you're not being a real man. Yeah, there you go. Sure. You can go all, you can play this game in any direction. And what Lasky is saying against this whole uh, Platonic tradition, uh, it's called in philosophy essentialism, as though the essence were more real than the existing thing the essence, the idea, the nature of something. Um, what Lasky is saying is, like you said, yes, in a much dis deflated way, we can continue to speak of natures as ideas of the characteristic possibilities of things, right? But the human calling is, uh, is to become a person who is like God, our creator. The human calling is not to fulfill the mandate of some abstract nature, but to live a life in history, ever becoming the likeness of God uh, as a person with a biography from birth day to death day. Right, which implies a definite preference for being, or sorry, becoming over being, which means history over ontology, and which I would argue the, the Laskian version of this is the only thing that can really ground the possibility of both freedom and love, because otherwise the only option is constant self-reiteration, or as you said, a teleological drive towards one single perfective model. And I think when we see um, in contemporary ways, the way people just get exhausted by the expectations put upon them, like you said, of what a woman is like, you know, or what a white person is like, or whatever, what a certain kind of office worker is like, is that it just completely shuts down both the freedom and the possibility of love in those situations or creativity either, because all that is required is, is endless replication. Endless replication is great for machines. It's horrible for human beings who are persons in the image of God. And, you know, now you can take this back to the Trinitarian theology and just think about Jesus Christ, who is by nature the Son of God, but 
Our knowing him as the Son of God does not consist at looking at Jesus at some moment and seeing through him to his divine sonship. Our knowing him as Son of God is that he learned obedience, that he behaved in his human history as a true son, up to and including the uncanny and utterly unnatural and unexpected obligation laid upon him to give himself in obedience even to death, death upon a cross. The prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane establishes the authentic sonship of Jesus uh, in his human history. And this is what it means to be a person, not simply to have a status, but with that status, an actual uh, mandate, as I said earlier, or task that needs to be lived out between birthday and death day. Right. Which also implies a future which involves development and becoming and so forth. So you can see here that there are just huge ethical ramifications that come out of how you think about what a person is. Um, and so, for instance, as I, you know, we've talked before a little bit about questions related to abortion and, and life in the womb and so forth. Again, in terms of like the nature question of DNA, there's just simply no dispute now about the fact that whatever it is in the womb, it's certainly a human being. And it's the kind of human being that all of us were um, before we were born. So in terms of the nature question, there shouldn't be any dispute. Um, in terms of the personhood, it's a unique person. It's one without any other um, genetic analog, unless it happens to be carrying an identical twin along there inside of it. Um, and, but as much as anything, it's something that has a future. The future may be short. It might be ill and not destined to live long. But there's uh, you know, a future calling to it until... God sees fit to uh, bestow death upon it, um, since God ideally should be the only one to bestow death upon any of us. Or as in the case of like the slaves and so forth, you know, every every black slave in America was just an iteration of the nature of black slave. There was no individuation, there was no personhood to them, and that's why you could simply reduce them legally to being only two-thirds of a person. Yeah, and, and that actually helps you understand that murder... Uh, is not simply the termination of an individual member of a species, but murder is depriving that individual of her or his calling to acquire likeness to God. It's a termination of the mandate of the future of that the, they've of been the future, promised. Right, that is given to them. And it, as such, it's a great sin against the giver of the gift. Right, it's it's a violation of the Creator, whose creature you have, thus uh, frustrated in terms of its calling to become a person. Yeah, and people, and including me, are sometimes a little shocked when um when Nathan confronts David after his uh, having Uriah killed and seducing Bathsheba, if that's the right word for it, even um, that his response is, "I have sinned against the Lord." And then in Psalm fifty-one, too, you know, against the Lord alone I have sinned, um, and that's considered to be David's psalm in response to Nathan confronting him. And yes, he certainly sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, and no doubt lots of other people in the process too. But the theological point it's trying to make is that all lives are gods. They are first of all gods. And he had given them the life in order to have that future and relationship to him. And David's actions cut that short. So in a true sense, the first and greatest sin was against God, not to deny the real sin against Uriah and Bathsheba. 
Absolutely. And I think here, you know, that we can't go into this today, but let's make a note for the future. I think just like we t- talked earlier about the distinction between violence and force in an earlier yeah. podcast, we should also talk sometime about the difference between sin and crime. Oh, okay. Of course, they overlap, as you were just saying, but they they, they have distinct uh, meanings, and we should sort that out sometime. But let's move on now. You've got this great idea here that's uh, uh, that there's a, a t- with the gift of being called a person before God that comes from the image of God doctrine, with the gift of this status that is bestowed upon you without regard to your uh, qualifications, but simply consists in the d- divine word and call. O human being, live before me and live in my presence, right? Fulfill the mandate of creation, of being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, subduing, and dominion. Live that life in my presence. Become a person from your birthday to your death day. That gift simultaneously uh, entails a task. That indicative entails an imperative. So let's try to sort out those two aspects now. Sure. I think that often makes people nervous. Like you have to make a choice between either you are a person from the moment of conception or a human from the moment of conception. And that is an an unvarying quality or inherent thing about you until you die. Or personhood is something that you grow into, develop, improve upon as you go along. And I think what we see actually in the nature-person distinction is how the two actually coexist quite nicely. It should not be a choice between the two of them. You are a person, and yet at the exact same time, you are called to be a person, and they are not contradictions. They, you know, as I would just instinctively as a Lutheran say, it mirrors the structure of salvation itself, is first you are saved because of God's love and gift to you. And then you are called in the saved state to become holy, even though you are already holy because Christ has saved you, and yet you're still called to be holy. So I think there's a a very nice analogy going on there between the two things. Very good, Sarah. And I think one of the concepts I've tried to develop to bring this out uh, is the concept of patiency, which is the Latin word, verb patio, to suffer as opposed to the Latin verb ago, to do something, comes into English, patio as patient, ago as agent. Right. And it's interesting, patient in English both means somebody who's in the hospital because they're sick and somebody who is waiting, 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 but, you know, in a good way <laughs> for, for what's coming in a proper way. And I think the, we, if we pair together patiency and agency... Uh, we have concepts that help us to describe this interesting paradox of both being designated a person and called to becoming a person in one's own unique individual biography. Patiency, for me, is kind of a way of paraphrasing the fact that none of us create ourselves. Uh, Before we ever come anywhere near adult agency, we have been nine months in our mother's wombs. We have been years of infancy at her breast uh, and at the care of the breadwinner of the family 
and then nurtured and trained and delivered not only by parents but by other mentors and teachers and and scoutmasters and all sorts of things. And by the time we finally acquire some adult sense of, gee, I'm my own person, I can do things on my own, we've already been patients of our villages and families and communities for many, many years. And this, is, this constitutes the moral starting point of our lives, uh, this uh, inheritance that we've received uh, from those who have gone, who go before us. And then in this way are passing on the reproductive baton to the new generation. It often drives me crazy reading pre-modern, but even modern philosophy, how often humanity is talked about as if it just started out as an adult and usually an adult male. Like the fact of children seems never to have crossed the transom of philosophers' minds until very recently. But what you point out in this emphasis on the patiency and how long it takes to be able to say, oh, I am my own person, you know, the non-reducible to my nature thing that I am, is the result actually of what you said at the beginning is being the product of of human coupling from the beginning and there's a you know a definite link there between the ongoing growth of personhood and the very production of personhood in the first place to that fundamental human community of Genesis 1 my friend the christian thinker fritz olschläger who wrote a wonderful book uh, procreative ethics uh, shared a paper with me recently in which he he just skewered these moral philosophers for their ridiculous uh, constructions of dile- conundrums and dilemmas, all of which overlook this factor of patience, this fact that uh, we are long, long, long being created before we ever become creative. And I think this is one of the crucial contributions Christian anthropology needs to make in our present cultural collapse that's occurring all around us. And this allows me a little bit to segue, I think, to our final topic for today, the correlation of patiency with agency that we've just described would be a a salutary contribution to the confusion of our times, in which I would describe as this. The European Enlightenment came up with a great dream of human sovereignty. It was most terribly and powerfully expressed in the philosopher René Descartes' dualism between thinking things and extended things, which is simply a fancy way of talking about mind-body dualism. Bodies are extended in space. They're just inert things. Minds, however, uh, uh, are transcended, and they are therefore uh, entitled to be sovereign, and they can control, manipulate, and predict all extended things, including the human body itself, uh, not only individually but socially. And this dream of a sovereign self, an unfettered agent, uh, is in the Christian vision the very quintessence of original sin. Luther wrote in the dissertation on scholastic theology, man wants to be God and does not want God to be God. And that's exactly this dream that philosophers of the European Enlightenment cooked up 
this fantastic notion that I can be whatever I want to be and that if I can't be whatever I want to be, somebody's oppressing me. And then so all the scapegoating and blaming that comes along with this frustrated ambition uh, to be like God, uh, which in the Christian understanding is itself the problem. What's happening in, in, in radical thought today in my reading is that a lot of people, especially in the name of the ecological crisis, are seeing how dehumanizing and toxic this dream of the sovereign self of modernity is and what damage it does to human bodies, not only my own, uh, but those of others who I want now to master as a thinking thing. And so deep ecology and certain kinds of radical feminisms are very keen on attacking this exaggerated agency of the modern self. But without the help of theology, of Christian theology, to correlate a proper modest notion of human agency with a proper and uh, modest notion of our patiency, our, our being creatures of God, the only alternative they have is to throw out the baby with the bathwater. And so many of these uh, circles of thought are actually calling themselves anti-humanist because they, they want so desperately to contradict the titanism of modern man, but they don't know how to do that without reducing him to an animal uh, simply responding instinctively to the uh, causal nexus. Right, which is going to lead either to totalitarianism or mass suicide as a way of getting this unruly mass of humanity under control. Yeah, I think so. I think in, in we can see that those tendencies in, in, in certain of these uh, radical groups, which are certainly got their finger on the problem, but the solutions they're offering, I think, are also very worrisome. <laughs> That's very true. And I can add, I think a lot of the um, the identity issues that come up for people nowadays a across the spectrum, whether on an individual level or, or collective level, is this failure to have a useful nature-person distinction. Because on the one hand, you are a nature. I mean, you're, you're an instantiation of an actual nature. You are given what you are. It was not your choice to be human. It was not your choice to be white or black or something else. It was not your choice to be male or female. And so I think there's a, a sense, maybe as an offshoot of this Titanism you mentioned, of this feeling of kind of rage at the nature I've been stuck with and a feeling that, you know, if I were truly free, I would be able to infinitely mold and alter my nature until it came in line with my ideas about what it should be. And I think that um, human healing and wholeness really requires somehow coming to terms with that nature. And I don't say that lightly because, you know, there can be natures that are very painful to deal with because of your social circumstances. Or I remember reading a story about someone who was absolutely paralyzed head to toe from birth till like in his 20s or something. And he had a completely lucid mind. He, you know, learned human speech from hearing it around him, but he could never utter a word, you know, and <laughs> I think that would be a really hard nature to, uh, 
uh, he, but he became a, a quite passionate Christian believer. So, wow, that's, that has to be the work of the Holy Spirit, because I don't know how else you, you wouldn't just rage against that nature. But on the other hand, when people do regard you as only your nature, with all they see is, oh, you're just a girl, you know, so therefore you're an object of my desire to rape, or you're just a black person, so you're like all the stereotypes I've ever heard, or, or whatever particular category that is. I mean, that's, I think, the point to, to bring in the personhood side and say, yes, this person is truly in nature and there's nothing wrong with being a woman and there's nothing wrong with being a black, but is also an individual and that there is freedom there in that individual person's life, their calling, their standing before God, their patience and their agency to exercise creativity, freedom, and love. And without that, especially, I think human life is really not, well, I don't want to say it's not worth living, but it's not what it is supposed to be. Um, I don't know actually right now if the issue is more on the personhood side or, or the nature side. I kind of feel like we're seeing a cultural shift to more rage against nature than rage uh, for freedom, but I, I could be wrong about that. It's just a guess. In my systematic theology, I, I argued that contemporary thought is on the horns of a dilemma. Uh, one wing uh, says naturalism, and the other wing says constructivism. In other words, one wing says everything is determined naturally all the way down, and the other wing says, no, everything's constructed all the way from bottom up. And there's no, there's no solving this dispute between uh, naturalists and constructivists. Uh, and you can see it on any uh, university campus between the natural sciences on the one side and the humanities and the social sciences on the other. That's the, the conundrum to which modern thought has come and why we're speaking of the end of modernity and the emergence of a postmodern consciousness, because everybody senses that there's something deeply wrong and unsustainable uh, 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 about this. I would conclude, Sarah, by putting it this way. What we have in common is not a state of consciousness, but a state of bodiliness. What makes us individuals are the boundaries of our own organism. Uh, and if we're going to be persons, it's on the basis of the individual organism that we are from conception on to death day, when that organism and its boundaries finally dissolve for good. Uh, having a state of bodiliness in common connects us then in spite of our varying states of consciousness. It actually connects us to one another and to the good earth, and I would say only so to God, our common creator. Uh, so I think the Lutheran pietist in the 19th century uh, who said all the ways of God conclude in bodiliness, was really on to something. Just as St. Paul in Romans 8 cries out that we await with eager longing the redemption of our bodies. Uh, I think, ironically enough, the, the proper emphasis on patiency and nature in tandem with personhood and history finds its reconciliation in this insight. We are body, and our redemption is the redemption of the body. Wonderful. Great. 
Well, let's wrap up then because we are, wow, way over time (laughs) compared to usual. Uh, But before we sign off, I just want to say to the listeners, we are approaching the end of our first season and we're already coming up with ideas for what we'll talk about in our second season. But if you have any topics you're particularly interested in um, or questions you'd like to ask, even follow up to previous episodes, please send them in to us. You can either leave them right on the Queen of the Sciences site or you can send me an uh, an email at Sarah at sarahhenlickywilson.com. And yeah, we'd love to hear from you and also just any comments you have about the show. Next time, we will be talking about the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicitas. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.